This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is much more than just another greens product. It's the most complete whole food supplement with 75 ingredients working together to help with 11 different areas of health. It's been developed over 10 years by doctors and nutritionists. One scoop of Athletic Greens is like having 11 supplements in one. You take the Athletic Greens in the morning, you make sure you got all those essential vitamins and minerals, micronutrients we've talked about on the podcast before. And what I love most about Athletic Greens is it tastes great. It doesn't taste like you're licking the floor of a barn like some other greens products out there. If you want to try this out, I got a special offer you can get 20 free travel packs valued at $99 with your first purchase. But to get this offer, you got to go to athleticgreens.com slash manliness. Again, athleticgreens.com slash manliness. Make your first purchase. You're going to get 20 free travel packs valued at Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In a world where some people have certain advantages that others do not, how do you navigate the landscape while still acting ethically? I guess they argues that we all need to put some more skin in the game. His name is Nassim Taleb. If you read the AOM site, you've likely seen our articles about his anti-fragility concept and his latest book, Skin in the Game, Hidden Asymmetries in Daily Life. He explores the ethics of living in a complex and uneven world. We begin our conversation discussing what Taleb means by skin in the game and how it's similar to traditional notions of honor. Nassim then explains what he means by asymmetries, how people exploit them unethically, and how skin in the game can reduce that exploitation. Talib then explains why ethics is hard to scale, why minorities end up ruling, and what it means to not only put skin in the game, but soul in the game. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash skin in the game. All one word. Nassim Nicholas Talib, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. As a follower and a visitor to your site, I'm very honored. Well, we've been a longtime fan of your work. In fact, your your books have inspired several articles on our site, and I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with your work. But for those who aren't, what's the big picture problem that you've been tackling with your, your life's work and writing? Okay. The Incerto is, uh, so far, a five-volume investigation of luck, randomness, and decision-making under opacity. You don't understand the world. What, you know, how can you be rigorous about things? Because science doesn't cover and doesn't claim to cover many areas of decision-making. See, science is about certainties and sometimes statistical uh, significance. But there's a lot of stuff not covered by science, maybe 99% of what we do. So I'm addressing these points in sort of like as, as rigorous a way as one can be. And, and Skin in the Game is the last volume. And, and Skin in the Game is sort of like, it, it, it's, it's sort of the, the idea culminated from statistical significance into ethics and honor, somehow in, in a weird way. Yeah, so you, you introduced this concept of Skin in the Game in Anti-Fragile. This book flushes it out even more. Yes, and in, in Anti-Fragile, I was surprised. Like say, every book uh, grows out of the ribs of the previous book. So right. fragile was about asymmetry in, in a sense that you can make money without having losses or, or you have more upside than downside, whether it's emotional, uh, financial, or you know, more generally you know, economic. But the point at the end of the book, I realized there was a class of people who have the upside and transfer the downside to others. So in other words, they are anti-fragile. They benefit from uncertainty because you know, heads, they win, tails, uh, someone else loses. 
So you, you want variance, you want uncertainty. So that class of people, I, I discovered that I absolutely had to talk about them at the end of Antifragile. But progressively, I realized that the discussion was not about asymmetry and economic incentives or disincentives. It was beyond and at two levels. The first one, it was about what life was about, what being a human meant, what risks one had to take to become real. And, and, and it became so it went into a much, unpredictably, into much more fundamental territory. What is it that we need to do to be humans? And also, what's the boundary? For example, my unit is not me. My unit is a collective. What can I do for the collective? Because that's me continuing. So, so these things, of, you know, of course, are covered in, in areas like group selection by scale, multi-scale, and stuff like that. But, but then I, I merged all these ideas into one book by having a, a very simple structure. The first 50, 60 pages are about asymmetry in the sense that if you have more upside than downside, you make sure that you're not transferring it to others. Like, for example, what I call the Bob Rubin trade, a fellow who made a lot of money, you know, stuffing Citibank with risks. But when he went bust, but when Citibank went bust, of course, it was you, myself, the Uber driver, the, everybody collectively was funding them. But you don't see it in, in the flow. So that's a hidden risk, the transfer of hidden risk. And, of course, I went into other notions, the central one being selection. Academics love to talk about selection and evolution, except when it comes to themselves. So anything that's not subjected to selection pressures basically will rot. So academics are judged by other academics, not by some mechanism of survival. So that field will rot. Restaurants, when they're judged by other restaurants, they, of course, develop horrible food. But when they're judged by the clients, they're going to be judged by survival. And, and subjected to that survival mechanism. And this is, uh, so these are the 50, first 50, 60 pages, I explained that asymmetry, that traditionally when people think of skin in the game, they think of incentives. Sometimes the more interesting people think of disincentive, like thou shall not make money without, you know, uh, bearing your own risk. And then the third level of, of that asymmetry is effectively a mechanism of, uh, removing risky people from society because war if warmongers didn't die in battle then then you'd have you know a, a very dangerously built society so that so that's uh, the first idea but most of the book then is about ramification that are very counterintuitive that flow from that asymmetry from theology to honor to risk everything together build it together All right, so what it sounds like you're saying is Skin in the Game became more of a work of ethics and how we interact with each other and how those asymmetries that we that show up in life happen on the personal societal level. Exactly. But there's one thing where you cannot separate ethics from competence. And it's in a footnote. <laughs> I think it's the first page. And if you say to your accountant, I trust you, are you trusting his or her skills? Or are you trusting that she will not uh, transfer money to Panama, you see, to her own checking account in Panama? What are you? What do you mean by trusting? So this idea actually is rather theological, that perfection is, is, is like offending God but not doing a perfect action yourself. 
But that idea that you cannot separate competence from ethics is not part of this course. These boundaries between epistemology, ethics, decision-making, and all these things are not well known. As I was reading how you were describing skin in the game in the first couple pages of the book, it made me think about traditional notions of honor and something we've written about extensively on our on our site. Uh, do you feel like that that this this traditional sense of honor really kind of captures what you're trying to get at with skin in the game? Exactly. For example, I think it's dishonorable for me to talk about things if I don't bear my own risk. I explained how traditionally in societies, the person who rose with very few exceptions, and the exceptions are quite telling and quite revealing, the person who rose to the top was a person who took the maximum amount of risk. So I show that only a third of Roman emperors died in their bed. And, and even then, we don't even know if they didn't die of poisoning. And, and of course, the, you have to, be, to become an emperor. First of all, to become a consul, you had to have had a military career. And to have a military career, you have to take more risks than soldiers. And you see, in, in, in England, uh, what's a lord? A lord is simply someone, a lord is someone who protects you like a mafia don in, in return for rank. That's it. So you cannot have rank without risk-taking. So that is in traditional societies. In modern society, I discovered there's a class of people, what I call the BS vendors. And, and this, is, this is a rant against BS vendors. And not only they don't understand the world because they have no contact, no skin in the game, so they can't figure out what's going on. But on top of that, they don't take personal risks. So you have a class of people who are cowards in positions of power in uh, bureaucracies and in, in, in government and a lot of in academia and a lot of places. And I despise these people. And I say it if whenever I see a public figure, I, I have a trick to figure out that the person is a charlatan or not. What's the trick? The trick is, is that person taking risks or not for his or her opinion? Every time I open my mouth to reflect anything, like virtue signaling that does not entail risk-taking has no virtue in it. You, if you don't take risks, you're nothing. What's an example of virtue signaling without risk-taking? Like you walk into a hotel and, and they tell you, well, save the environment, and, and they're ripping you off by saving on, uh, on washing your towels, for example. Or someone who stands up and starts delivering, uh, you know, like university uh, officials. Oh, this is diversity, this is fairness, this is this, this is that. That's virtual signaling because they're not taking risks for their uh, statement. But someone who stands up and says, for example, it is not true that the Syrian government is fighting, you know, is, is fighting uh, Mother Teresa, the Syrian government is fighting headcutters, someone who goes against monoculture, for example, and reveals things that are not held to be true, but are effectively true. Or take an academia. If you come up with an idea that's not, you know, in the discourse, then automatically they, in academia, they can, they can really destroy your life by labeling you as a crank. So, the uh, having an unpopular position within academia is very rare, and those who do that usually are the big people. So skin in the game isn't just about incentives. It's about getting the upside without, you know, I guess, exporting the downside to others. 
But yes, but I mean, to me, like, when you look at that, people are like, well, of course, why would I? I would take the upside and not. I mean, why wouldn't I just export the downside? How do you incentivize people to not export? Well, you don't want to invest. So the whole idea of honors, you do of honor is you don't do it as for any incentive, and that's fundamental to humans. If you don't have humans like that, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have the world. You're you're helping others not because you're going to be paid back, but you're helping ours to help to help others because they're part of you. You see, this modern modernity brought this artificial boundary between humans. Like you think that you know that your your death is the end of the world. No, your death is not the end of the world. The death of you plus whatever family members you have, plus descendants if you have, plus your pets, plus humanity, plus your plus your tribe, plus humanity, plus of course the environment, planet Earth, other uh, you know living organisms on, on planet Earth. These this is your the worst case scenario, not just your death. So if you look at it with that perspective then you have an obligation to protect the, the things outside of you that have longer life expectancy than you. And that's my idea of, 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 of scaling and, and scalability of scaling the game. Right, and that sounds like a traditional notion of honor because it's not just about you, it's about your group as well. Family. It's especially tribe. about your group. Especially about your group. And actually, we solved the problem in, in classics. In the, the, the virtues in the Greeks, two main virtues are prudence, and, and you would think that, that it's a good virtue of prudence, but courage at the same time. Now, how can you solve <laughs> that contradiction, that both are virtues, and on top of that, you cannot have one virtue. If you have one virtue and not all of them, then you got a problem. So how can you solve? Well, effectively, courage isn't going gambling in the casino for selfish reasons. Courage is about taking risks for something bigger than you, like uh, saving kids from drowning. You see? That is, you, you, you have a transfer of, of, of risk from you to the collective that's in the positive, not like Bob Rubin trained in a negative direction. So it sounds like this is a, it's an ethical code. So it, I got, as I was reading it, that you don't think that, or correct me if I'm wrong, that laws and regulations can reduce asymmetries. We need to rely more on this traditional notion of honor. To do so, yeah, tort laws, tort laws could do that. Tort laws okay. can, can reduce some asymmetry, but there are things you can't, of course, uh, address with torts. Plus, my whole idea about, about being human is to do things beyond you. And but I, but I have no problem with people with 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 incentive and rewards. My point is, if you're not taking any risk, you're nothing. But people detect that. I mean, I wrote uh, early on. I wrote about, about the Christ. Okay. Why is it that Christian theology kept insisting that the Christ was not God, he was man? Not, not you know, and, and of course you had a lot of debates, a lot of people died in, 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 in riots over that, okay? Why is it that the Christ has to be, had to be man? Well, think about it, skin in the game. A, a God who doesn't suffer, you see, doesn't have skin in the game. And, and the whole idea is, is to bridge you create a bridge between you and God with Christ in between, he suffered, you see, and then it invites you to become, uh, that's what what we uh, Greek Orthodox call theosis, to come closer to God by doing some actions. Now, now that idea of skin in the game, the fact that he is skin in the game, is is not just unique to Christianity. I mean, if you go to a circus, uh, you have acrobats walking on these tight ropes. If they have a parachute and, and, and protection and, and all these things, they, it wouldn't be as appealing. 
So I noticed that effectively people's rank depended on how many scars they have. And, and having scars was a big thing, although scars would be, uh, you know, considered by economists or modernists a sign of failure. No, scars meant skin in the game. So when I was watching, and that's in my, I think, my early chapters, Donald Trump, you know, he was running against a collection of, at the time, it was the primaries, a collection of people who looked lifeless. And he looked full of, like he was full of life. And I was wondering, what was the difference? Well, the difference is that, and that's a huge, huge difference, that Trump was, it was report, had been reported that Trump lost a billion dollars of his own money. Now, someone who loses a billion dollars is real. It's not a video game. And people are attracted then, so that's exactly why it went. So this idea of scaling... Scaling ethics, scaling skin in the game, where you start with yourself, but then you also think beyond yourself. Okay, but the scaling is not trivial. We know, and I invoke a lot of the ideas of Eleanor Ostrom, who shows how fishermen, you know, uh, they work as a group. It works very well when the group is not very large. So, but when the group becomes large, the dynamics change and becomes a fierce competition and to deplete resources. Whereas before that, they protect resources. So, so a lot of that scaling is effectively, uh, you got to think at a level of a scale, that you are a scale, your family is at a scale, and there's behavior within and behavior between that group and the outside, and so on. And that goes against universalism. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. All right. Every man should have at least one suit in the wardrobe. You're going to wear this to weddings, funerals, job interviews, you know, those occasions when you will have to wear a suit. Now you can go off the rack at a department store and you can tailor it a bit, but it's never going to fit you, right? Because there's certain parts of a suit you can't tailor. Best way to go is go made to measure, but you're probably thinking Brett's going to cost a lot of money. Not so with Indochino. At Indochino.com, you can get a made to measure suit and customize it how you want it to look. And you're going to pay about the same price as you would for an off the rack suit at a department store. Here's how it works. You go to Indochino.com. You choose your fabric. You can customize the suit however you want, how you want the lapels to look, whether you want pleats, no pleats on your pants, cuffs, no cuffs, you, whether you want a vent, double vent on your jacket. You submit your measurements. They have this easy to follow video guide that you just follow. You submit it in three weeks or less, you're going to have a made to measure suit sent directly to your door. Now, here, I got a special offer for my listeners. If you want to try this, and I've done this before, I got a navy blue suit from Indochino. I love it. Go to Indochino.com right now, and you get any premium Indochino suit for just $359 when you use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a premium made-to-measure suit, plus shipping is free. Again, to get the special offer, go to Indochino.com, promo code MANLINESS for any premium suit for just $359 plus free shipping. Again, Indochino.com, promo code MANLINESS. Also by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great 
match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you can find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. All you got to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. Right. So we can't, it's, it's, it's pretty much impossible to have a coherent ethical code that everyone is on board with after a certain point. The group gets too large. Exactly. Think about it. You can't say you're discriminating against uh, strangers because you don't have your door open for Thanksgiving. Right. You want to limit it to your family. This is so. I use the concept that the the Jewish ethics is called thick blood versus thin blood. You're obligated to be ethical towards everyone, but you got to be even some are more equal than others to you in in that sense. So, for example, if you see children drowning, it, it's probably your obligation is to. Or, I mean, in that sense, to save your kids, provided of course you're not endangering others. Save your kids first. Now, that's, you wonder, why would that be so? Because the other parents also have to save their kids first. So how do, we, how do you interact? So we're, we're a homogenous society in America. There's over 350 million people, I think. How do different groups that have different ethical codes? No, right? it, I mean, it's a multi-scale. In other words, you behave within your whatever community, local community, and you can define your community however you want in a certain way. And, and, of course, a little, you can behave a little differently with the outside and progressively. To give you an example, in, in the book, I explain why it's perfectly compatible with this logic to be libertarian at the national level, which is the federation level, to be a Republican at the state level, to be a Democrat at the county level or at the town level, and to be socialist at the family and friends level, you see? Or maybe even a communist at the nuclear family level. So, so it is not. I mean, you have you, you, the dynamics can vary with the scale, and the scale matters a lot. That was already an anti-fragile, but here I put some ethical dimension to it. But let's think about it. I love. I don't want to hurt animals. Okay, so I'm very nice to dogs and cats and other mammals. But at some point, but I prefer. But I treat. There's a preferential treatment. Okay. I, I favor dogs over cockroaches. A, a pure universalist would have no boundaries. You'd have to go all the way to microbes. So it becomes absurd. Unless you put some gradation, it becomes completely absurd. That makes sense. It's the idea of like, when if you, if you say you love everybody, it means you love no one. That's exactly the one. That's Nietzsche who said it. You, can't, you, can't, you cannot have, you can, it becomes too promiscuous. But you have to be ethical with everybody. Treat everybody fairly. Right. When you, you, you 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 also highlight in the book even in these ancient cultures where tribe was you know one of the most important things even amongst different tribes there was a, a very stringent code of hospitality where you treated strangers a certain way yes i mean the and, and that's based on a reciprocal altruism like for example if you have a desert desert condition like arab tribes would be very hostile to one another in war but if a wandering person shows up they treat him as a uh, like a king because they also would like to be treated like that in harsh desert conditions. And so the person is fed and, and treated very nicely. But, but when you encounter, a tri- when it's tribe versus tribe, then you have war, warfare. You also talk about there's not just skin in the game, there's also soul in, soul in the game. What, is, what does that mean? Well, so, I mean, so what I'm saying is that the, the category of the people, 99% of Americans are very well calibrated. 
you see, they, they, you, you take and you give. You, you don't take more than you give. That's 99% of the population. Then you have the remaining 1%, these bureaucrats, all these university administrators, all, all the, 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 these people, okay, these, I, treat, I treat them like the evil of uh, modern society. Those who want to run your lives, the nudge people like Thaler, this guy, uh, Cass Sunstein, all these people who are both clueless and evil at the same time. So you have that, that, that category of people, they take more than they give. You see, they derive, they derive a salary and stuff like that. And then you have a category of people, the saints, who give more than they take, and, and because they, they, they feel that their mission is to do that, like people who die for the sake of a collective. Revolutionaries, saints, Joan of Arc, and people like that. It's just, just like that's their mission, and that's how they, and, and they feel that's their sense of honor. That's, there's something about it, about them that is, makes them derive, in other words, they don't care, but they're selfless. And, and, and of course, they take risks for the collective, for the improvement of, of life on, on, on Earth. So now, these people are very, very rare, and you would expect to see them in, among people who claim to be a revolutionary. It's not true. You don't find them there. Where do you usually find them at? You find them in, in, in all walks of life. You find them, whether you find them in, I mean, whether you have an aunt who is completely selfless, she cares about... And she has, she doesn't have children and she cares about everyone in the community or whether you have, or you can have prophets, you have, uh, or, or, you know, authors, people who, who basically expose some, some risks and end up in jail. One concept you also talk in Antifragile and you, you flesh out even more in Skin in the Game and something that, a concept that I've been thinking about a lot since I learned about it was the Lindy effect. What is that and how does that uh, okay. reduce but, asymmetries yes. in life? Yeah, that's interesting. I've discussed that and in, in, in effectively even in the Black Swan when I started discovering the process. There are some things. L- l- humans have life expectancy decreasing with time. See, so if you're 100, you have a couple of years to go in life expectancy. If you're at zero, you have 80 years to go. You see? And if you're at 80, you have five years to go. Or no, no, you have 12 years to go. So, or maybe more to that. So the, the life expectancy decreases with age. But for, te- for technologies, for some, a class of things, Subjected to some kind of uh, um, survival pressures, you have the opposite effect. Like technology that's 100 years old has another 100 years to go, but it's statistical. It's not certain. So like life, life expectancy. You see, you have children dying, yet life expectancy is 80, you see. And that came from, the idea came from a restaurant now that went bust between uh, the delivery of the manuscript to the publisher and the day of publication, sometimes in between. And particularly that is very interesting because the publisher is like within two blocks of my publisher. And usually when I go there, I walk by Lindy. That's where actors used to meet, and they discovered that uh, Broadway shows that had 500 days under the belt had at least 500 days more to go. So they would pick uh, shows that had a longer track record. Now, how does it link to skin in the game? Without skin in the game, you don't get Lindy. And it's also very important. It tells you how time judges things. See, so that's people fail to realize that the, bit, the only experts around this time. People think that the expert should be, you know, someone who went to Harvard. No, the expert is time. So the way you put skin in the game is, I guess, one way 
to take advantage of the Lindy effect is you you don't write for now, you write for posterity, for example. Oh, okay, no, the way no, actually the trick is you don't have to think of posterity, posterity in terms of posterity. That's my via negativa. Yeah, to predict the future, remove from today anything that 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 is twenty years old or younger, and whatever is left would be there in the future. So, because technologies displace technologies, like the laptop displaced the uh, desktop, and the, the the whatever is displacing the tablet is displacing the laptop. So, so you have to think in terms of uh, what is what has survived the test of time, and effectively, you know, we're converging. This other thing, technology is converging to what we you know have have used for a long time since the tablet is six thousand years old, or maybe more. So, when I write. I write something that is valid today, understandable today, then I'm lucky to be old enough to think, you know, to project it in the past. Would that made, have made sense to someone 30 years ago? Would it have been as interesting 30 years ago? Ah, therefore, this is more likely to survive an extra 20 or 30 years. And, and interestingly, I started doing that 20 years ago. It was my first book. And 20 years later, it's still selling. I thought it was an interesting point you raised about, you mentioned earlier in our conversation how some of the stuff you're talking about in Skin in the Game is theological. And towards the end of the book, you talk about how religion makes people or communities of people anti-fragile. How, how so? Okay, now one, one thing is about the idea of rationality. I spent a lot of time in the book and outside the book studying, examining, and trying to figure out what rationality means. And they have a lot of academic representation of rationality, but, but they all sort of make sense and they don't make sense. The central one is the idea of rationality in survival. You see, you don't know ex ante what is rational. You, it's not by reasoning. And the world is too complex. It assumes you understand more than you do, and it's highly unscientific. So... What is rational for me is what has survived. And as a statistician, I tell you something that has survived uh, or an instinct we've had like paranoia that has survived, uh, you know, uh, millions of years, you know, before even we were humans. So it has to have some kind of rationale to it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. So if you judge things based on using this argument of rationality, you should not, then, then there are a lot of things that make sense, like religion makes sense, if it allows people to survive, and odds are, it has allowed many people to survive. And that's the idea. So I started examining the kashrut, the dietary habits of Hebraic people, and I noticed that they have some attributes that probably help them survive. Who am I to judge something? I don't understand the world enough. So that's the idea of rules that don't seem to make sense to me, but may make sense from a ruin standpoint. And, and the notion of ruin is lack of extinction. It's very different. So, okay, that raises, you said something interesting there. So earlier we talked about uh, laws and regulations aren't, besides tort laws, aren't an effective way to reduce asymmetries. Uh, more, an ethical, overarching ethical code, but in the book you also talk about there, there are rules if they stem from an ethical code that can help guide people to make rational or decisions that will help them survive. Yeah, but there, okay, there's another thing here about ethics that I mentioned in the second chapter about the minority law, that we have the illusion, and, and that's a misunderstanding complexity, 
that society is the arithmetic sum of the preferences of its members. And then therefore, a collective ethic would emerge because each one of us is quite ethical. That's not true. It comes from the intolerance of a very small number of people who are monstrously ethical and impose sort of like their virtue on society because the other guy, the other people chicken out. And that's the minority rule. And I showed it the same example. Minority rule is in dietary laws. Someone coming from Mars and observing the U.S. population would notice that, would think that they're Orthodox Jews because almost all drinks, uh, soft drinks in the U.S. are kosher. Why is it so? Because a kosher person will never uh, drink non-kosher, but a non-kosher will drink kosher. Well, it's the same thing with, 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 with ethics. An ethical person will never buy a non, you know, an unethical, a stolen merchandise, but a less ethical person, you know, doesn't mind having ethical behaviors. You see, so th- that asymmetry is what determines ethics in society. But with this asymmetry, this minority rule, I was reading that. What do you do if there's a minority group who are trying to impose their ethics, but like you don't like them? Right, like for example, I thought of like you know Islamic terrorists. Yeah, okay, the the that, that's a big problem. But but the the in the past people didn't understand the reason for the growth of Salafi Islam, and Salafi Islam is something to be treated from within Islam. Forget about in the West. You see, there are people. If you put one Salami Salafi uh, Muslim with ten Sunnis non Salafis, the eleven will behave like a Salafi, you see, because of their asymmetry in rules. So the, the idea is to find, to fight Salafi Islam where it was born and, and also stop funding Saudi Barbaria because they're the one who have created this uh, Salafi uh, nonsense. Well, Nassim, this has been a, a good conversation, a great intro to to the book. Where can people go to learn more about your work? I think from within the book, the book, the book, you know, let me tell you one thing as an author. If I can explain my book, then I should be, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be writing books. Shouldn't rent the book. No, right? no, I shouldn't be writing uh, newspaper articles and the ideas. So a book has to be uh, something bigger than my explanations of it. Oh, it's true. I think we, we just, I think literally scratched the surface of what's there. Well, Nassim, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. A huge honor, particularly that you're one of the very, very few sites on the web that I visit. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot. Thank you. Thanks. My guest here is Nassim Talib. His latest book is called Skin in the Game. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at fooledbyrandomness.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash skin in the game, where you can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the podcast, I've got something out of it. I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think gets something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.